Two of our Bible studies at Trinity are studying Paul's letter to the Philippians in a rather unusual way. They are reading a, a historically based imagining centered on Lydia, the merchant of purple cloth in Philippi, described in the book of Acts. According to scripture, she and her household were baptized by Paul and were likely the first followers of the way on the European continent. Like Mary of Magdala, God places a woman, Lydia, in the lead. In this epistle, Paul urges two leaders of the church in Philippi to be of the same mind regarding a community issue and Christ. We don't know the disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche. What we do know is that in the early church, it was a struggle to live the gospel. Remember, there's no New Testament canon at this time, just a few letters, and maybe not even that. In this passage, Paul's use of the term, the book of life, caught my attention. It's clear reference to the Hebrew concept of a divine list of the righteous who receive God's blessing of life. And it was up to the individual to keep their entry in that ledger. After the Israelites create the golden calf, the Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Psalm 69 refers to it in the negative regarding David's adversaries. Let them be erased from the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. In the New Testament, the term is enhanced with more descriptions of what eternal life might mean. In Revelation, the worthy or righteous will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. A secular corollary for the time in first century Rome would be to have your name erased from the register of the um, empire. So we have a context in scripture for the meaning of the book of life, with grace preceding us with God's gift of life and following us in the visions of a heavenly banquet at the side of God's royal rule as described in Isaiah and in Jesus' parable today. The parable of the king who gave the wedding banquet for his son is the third in Matthew's series of kingdom parables given in rapid succession. The parables are Jesus' response to the chief priests and elders in the temple when they question his authority. But unlike the two previous parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the vineyard owner we heard last week, Jesus adds a cautionary message intended for his followers so that they may not assume that they are automatically written in the book of life. Just like weddings today, a wedding banquet is something planned for in great detail. Invitations are sent out with ample warning to attend. It's a preposterous situation that we find here today, though. God, symbolized by the king, has prepared a feast for uh, guests to enjoy and to celebrate his son, Jesus, of course. And upon sending his slaves, the prophets, out to summon the guests, the leaders of Israel, they do not come. The king sends more slaves, and these slaves are the followers of Jesus. And they have, but they, the guests have better plans. And one of the guests 
has them killed. The parable illustrates how severe the refusal to attend the banquet of salvation is. A feast of rich foods and well-aged wines, as described by the prophet Isaiah. In response, the king sends an army to destroy their city. Matthew is writing in the latter part of the first century and alludes to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 by the Romans. Since the people of Israel, the original, original guests, refused to celebrate the sun, the king moves on and gets a different group to attend. He sends more slaves, more people following Jesus, to invite the marginalized. The poor, the good, and the bad are gathered into celebration. Clearly, these people have few possessions. They live on the margins, literally, at the edge of the gate, and are grateful for the invitation. Now the king points to one who is not properly dressed in the festival wedding garb. Seems to be a little bit far-fetched, but remember, this is a parable, an allegory, so images can be stretched to make a symbolic point. So hold on to that thought for a minute. Back to the book of life. How are people counted in this book of life? Is it because they are God's chosen people from Israel? Maybe, maybe not. Is it because they're followers of Jesus? Yes, no. This parable is about our faithfulness to the word of God and our response to his call on our lives. For the Jews, it is following the Torah given to them by a fearful God, a God who loves his chosen people by giving them the law and sending the prophets. God intended them to share the justice and mercy of Yahweh with all nations, with all people, but it just wasn't working. God sent his son Jesus to be the savior of God's people, a Messiah. He also came to save the rest of us. In our parable, the man the king called friend, back to him with no wedding robe, is a person who said yes, just like the son in the first parable in our series several weeks ago, but has done nothing to further his journey in faith. There's no life in him in accordance to Jesus' teaching. There's no goodness in him, no worthy response to God's call on his heart. He accepted the invitation to the gospel, but he did not live according to it. In fact, He's silent when asked what he has done with his life. Why has he not prepared for this wedding feast? And the man is taken to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called and a few are chosen, but it's not about proportionality. Jesus is laying out the truth about life to all in this context of conflict with the Pharisees. At the same time, Jesus warns against self-righteousness and arrogance amongst his own followers so that they and we are included in the book of life and share in the riches of the heavenly banquet, a banquet of rich food filled with marrow and well-aged wine strained clear, a banquet where death is swallowed up. Paul is more tender with his words to the faithful in Philippi. He says to us, stand firm in the Lord. Let your gentleness be known to all. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, 
honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable. If there's excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep doing the things you have learned and received and seen in me. And the God of peace be with you always.